I can't imagine any time in the future that AI would replace doctors, but I can imagine clinicians who use AI as a tool would replace the ones who don't. That's it off, one of the co-founders of C-Mode, and this is Wild Hearts. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Wild Hearts, a podcast dedicated to sharing the real stories of founders, the passionate few taking giant leaps forward. We're here to uncover the lessons from the founders looking to change the world and the investors who back them. This podcast is brought to you by the team at Blackbird, and I'm your host, Mason Yates. Artificial intelligence is on the cusp of healthcare. The superpower of AI is to process images and recognize patterns. It is custom made for diagnosing health conditions using medical imaging. And C-Mode empowers clinicians to predict strokes and save lives. Malad and Sadaf, the co-founders of C-Mode, are relentless. To celebrate the announcement of their Series A, we chat about how they've built the world's first AI software for analysis of vascular ultrasound, the milestones that they needed to hit to get their first investment, and we tease out the question of who owns your health data. Nikki Shavak, the co-founder of Blackbird, has now joined the board and describes how C-Mode is like an Iron Man suit for clinicians, and so much more in this episode of Wild Hearts. I really hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did, and here is Milad and Sadaf. Thank you both so much for coming on today. What does the world of healthcare look like in 10 years? Thank you for having us. The world of healthcare in general, you know, is too vast to comment on. If I want to break it down into like three areas, I would say the first one is around accessibility. I feel like, especially with the rise of telehealth solutions, with people having mobile phones all the time with them, there would be more patients that can access the healthcare information and the clinician access that they need. So patients' connectivity to doctors, I I imagine that it would take a, a turn for the better over the next decade. That's area number one. Sort of like the second one that I would think of around how healthcare looks differently is around therapeutics. So right now we have access to computational techniques that can be used for drug development and can speed up drug development that we didn't have access to before in the previous decades. The third one, which we are the most excited about at C-Mode is actually in the diagnostic domain. You know, it's about figuring out based on clinical data, what is the underlying condition affecting the patient and the treatment plan for them. And I imagine that we will see two important changes over the next decade. One is around quality and increasing quality in the data analysis for each patient, where we would have algorithms that act as an assistant or a double checking system for the clinicians reading these medical data, reading these medical images of the patients. And that would help in reducing errors uh, that could potentially occur and at the same time speed up the workflow of the clinicians. Besides quality, there is another aspect in the diagnostic domain that we're super excited about. I feel like it's less spoken about compared to everything else, which is unlocking a level of depth of understanding from the clinical information that we have that we didn't have access to before. And, you know, allowing clinicians to go one level deeper and deeper into the scans that they have from their patients, into the medical data that they have, and accessing diagnostic information that they either did not have access to before or was extremely expensive and difficult to access. Employing algorithms within that clinical workflow, we can bring some of the higher value 
tests from the downstream of the patient management workflow into upstream the moment uh, that the patient touches on within the hospital or within the clinic. So a good example would be instead of looking at a, a medical image of a, uh, of a seemingly cancerous lesion and then sending a patient for biopsy to then come to the results of whether this is a malignant or a benign lesion, we might be able to get the same high value information upfront and with that initial test that's performed. So that's a level of depth that we currently do not have access to, but I see that coming more and more within the next decade. Yeah, just building on top of that, I think another thing is that currently all of the clinical guidelines are for an average patient. You know, it's a very statistical being. It doesn't exist out there. And basically it's obtained by averaging out all of the data points in a clinical study where there is actually huge variation. So the average patient look different compared to my profile. It's different compared to yours, but we are all being uh, treated with that single data point. So hopefully, you know, in in 10 years, in near future, we should have a stronger push toward precision medicine and treatment pathways that are not only based on the guidelines, but uh, are enhanced uh, by using the patient-specific information as well. Gosh, well, what is CMO doing about that? How does it fit inside that world? (laughs) (laughs) So our mission at CMOD is to help doctors better predict and prevent strokes, which is one of the leading causes of death in the world and the first leading cause of preventable disability in adults. So we do that by analyzing medical images like ultrasound, CT scans, and MRIs, and using latest techniques available in machine learning and computational modeling. So to connect this to what we just said, let's take the journey of a stroke patient. You know, currently stroke patients are managed based on clinical guidelines from around 20 or 30 years ago. This process of looking at medical images for the clinicians to manage their stroke patients, first is a very labor intensive and highly manual task, which can introduce errors. And the second thing is that there are critical risk factors about these patients that are currently missing from the a clinical tool set of the, of the clinician. They know about a specific risk factors like high-risk plaques and high-risk blood flow about these patients that can help them design a better treatment plan for that patient and prevent a future stroke from occurring, but they do not have access to good technology to obtain that in a hospital. They cannot detect that with their naked eyes on a standard image, and if they need that information, they have to essentially go around the route of obtaining super expensive, rare, fancy MRIs that are not routine. So what we're doing at CMOD is helping in that initial workflow in terms of quality and efficiency, and at the same time, bringing the value of some of those downstream high-value tests that can help a doctor design a better stroke prediction plan for that patient upstream and into standard images that they're taken from their patients. Computational fluid dynamics is a really important part of your product, and I'm increasingly seeing it. Can you describe what it is and how it plays a role in CMOD's first product? All right. Excellent. Let's go for another podcast on that. In, in, in the simplest terms that you can. In two sentences. Uh, so <laughs> Computational product- fluid dynamics. That's what it is. <laughs> it's two sentence summary. So at CMOD, our product roadmap is sort of broken down into those efficiency workflow tools that we built purely based on image analysis, deep learning techniques, but some of the latest ones and the best techniques available, just given that we have to deal with very difficult problems. And then 
it gets progressed into our second and our third product. And that's where computational fluid dynamics starts to come in, which is when we are using the geometry of blood vessels in the neck or in the brain of a patient and use mathematical equations to simulate how blood flow would move through these geometry of blood vessels. Imagine a very intricate piping system and you want to know how water is flowing through this piping system, but replace that with like millimeter sized arteries in the brain. And the fact that you, all of the information that you have about this patient is coming from, an, from a CT image or an MR image. Like you don't actually have the measurements around how much flow is coming in and going out. And we are solving that problem by using this technique, CFD or computational fluid dynamics. That's actually a perfect example of, you know, going for precision medicine and patient-specific information. So the blood vessels in my brain looks different compared to yours, but based on the current guideline, both of them would be judged based on the size of the blood vessel and the size uh -huh. of the brain. While the blood flow pattern, the movement of the blood inside our brain can be completely different between me and you. And this is what uh, the computational fluid dynamics part comes in and try to answer that question. Can you describe what an algorithm might look like in the simplest fashion possible? Sure thing. So we have a static image of a patient's brain. We have an image of how large the blood vessels are and which blood vessel is connected to which one. And we also know the 3D geometry of these blood vessels. We can obtain that using deep planning models that we use from 3D images like CTs and MRIs. What we do then is to start looking at the relationship of, for example, diameters and length and any narrowing within these blood vessels compared to other blood vessels that are connected to them. And then we start building equivalent of electrical circuits at the end of each of these blood vessels that would simulate what organ is this blood vessel feeding and with what uh, mm -hmm. amount of resistance uh, that organ is sort of pushing back on the flow. And then we use all of those parameters that we found by analyzing the geometry, building equivalent electrical circuit resistances, et cetera, on the MRI itself or on the CT scan itself and get a clearer picture of flow moving through the brain. That is remarkable. That was helpful. <laughs> that was so helpful. I, honestly, that was like so well put. You've just mapped it out completely for me. Awesome. What are some of the manual mistakes a doctor might make? Yeah, good point. So it freak, freak me out a little. <laughs> <laughs> you can have, for example, we saw in a case study where a full blockage of an artery was reported in the wrong artery in another blood vessel. And that's not great for the patient, not great for the <laughs> clinician. And unfortunately, it's to no fault of the clinician on their own. You know, it's about human bias. How, how does human bias play a role? Yeah, so I think we, we all know that, you know, human brain by nature is systematically biased. And this is the case for the clinicians as well. So, well, first of all, the way that your doctor interprets your scan, your images, very much depends probably on the past 50, 100 cases that they have seen, right? While your scan might be actually very different compared to those. Another way that bias can contribute here is that, you know, we all know that we make uh, different decisions under pressure. There are a lot of contributing factors to the way that a human comes to a decision. Obviously, pressure can affect that. Cognitive load can affect that. 
and have a clinician going through, you know, 50 patients, each of them having 50 images every day, obviously you are going to make mistakes. You're at the same time under a lot of pressure. Your phone is ringing. There is, a, there is another patient in the emergency room and you have to report that the case that you have at hand in like in the next two minutes. So obviously it results in making mistakes and uh, coming to decisions that you might take differently if you were just working at that single task. And I'd love to, I mean, on another podcast with Applied, they were talking about the bias that comes with ordering effects, even what time of the day it is, how being tired can influence the way that you make decisions. So it sounds like we can't escape from it. Yeah, Uh, 100%. On the same note, I think I was reading about this in the Undoing Project book about Danny Kahneman and I think almost Tversky, like the founders of behavioral economics. And he was talking about this experiment in the 1960s. So we're not talking about the era of machine learning. In the 1960s, in the Oregon Research Institute, where a group of psychologists were trying to figure out how a group of radiologists actually make a decision about cancer on x-rays. They asked these radiologists about six or seven features the top features that they pay attention to, to diagnose the patients. And they started experimenting with the simplest model that they could build, which was a linear equal weightage combination of these six or seven features. And the model started performing at the same level in 1960s in detecting cancer, as well as the experts. And they started relating that to all of these human biases that happen in the decision-making process to no fault of the clinician. It's just in our nature. And what are some of the risk factors that you were talking about before that you might be able to pick up that perhaps a doctor can't? Yeah, 100%. So in this medical images, there are essentially two key risk factors that doctors have been aware of for the past 20, 30 years. One of them is in patients who have a blockage in their blood vessels of a certain composition or certain compositions material that creates a higher risk of stroke for that patient. So we know, for example, that existence of blood inside a plaque in a blood vessel can create a higher risk of a a stroke or a cardiovascular event for that patient. So again, this is something that exists in the images. Clinicians know about it, but they do not have access to good technology to obtain it. Another risk factor is is the existence of high-risk blood flow in the patient that can create a higher likelihood of a repeated stroke for that patient. So they need that information to, for example, make a better decision uh, about whether a patient would benefit from receiving a stent and opening up a blood vessel or not, which they cannot do with the current technology that they have. So how do you see C-Mode integrating within hospitals? So we have tried to build C-Mode in a way that doctors don't have to make any changes to the current clinical workflow that they have. Scan their patients any differently. We're working based on the same scans that they've collected for years. So we're trying to make interactions with C-Mode as easy as logging into your email and then you you can start using software. We don't have any on-premise installation requirements for the hospitals or any hardware integration requirements. We're trying to just make it a plug and play experience as much as possible. So with our first product, of, we've built a software for clinicians, mainly sonographers, to report vascular ultrasound scans with a single click. 
and then get a report within less than a minute. That's in contrast to their current process that you know takes around 10 to 20 minutes, depending on how complex the case is. Can you describe a bit more what it was like building your first product? Oh, 100%. <laughs> Yeah, actually, let's let's go back, you know, to the very first day of starting. <laughs> so uh, Milad and I both uh, finished our PhDs in 2017 in biomedical engineering. So I did AI machine learning for medical applications, working on complex networks and optimization. And Milad did fluid mechanics for medical applications and worked on improving minimally invasive surgeries using lasers. But after finishing the PhD, we both uh, knew that we didn't want to stay in a research lab. We uh, wanted to build a product and see it used in the real world. And coming to the problem that we are solving now at CMO for a stroke prediction, we almost came by it by luck. Then we met one of the most famous neurologists in Singapore. He started talking about the problem that they have with a stroke prediction and then after that, we started digging deeper and deeper, both in terms of, you know, uh, going through the literature, reading all the papers that we could, as well as talking to as uh, many clinicians that we could have access to. So I remember, I think in the first uh, month of wanting to start a company, we were talking to 50 clinicians just running from one hospital to the other. I remember that at some days, we were just taking notes and trying to capture everything from the previous meeting in a cab, just running to the next hospital <laughs> to make sure that we are capturing the problem that, that the doctors are having with the stroke prediction. Exactly. There was a lot of note-taking in taxis that happened. <laughs> um, and, you know, from, from that point on, we then started breaking up these problems that we understood over that first month into essentially two key problems. One was around uh, workflow efficiency and quality of image analysis, image reporting. Uh, we found out that it has a shorter route to market in terms of R&D, in terms of amount of regulatory effort that we needed to go through, and it could become a fully fledged product faster. And the other aspect was about understanding these super specialized risk factors of a stroke, which obviously had a longer R&D roadmap to market and at the same time required us to access super specialized data sets as well. And, you know, again, from then on, it was a typical startup story. So with a bit of a medical flavor, uh, it was about build a team, race it to get the product built, build a product through tons of iterations with the users, get regulatory approval, start having your first sales discussions, which in our case was like massive and complex hospitals and imaging chains, close your first customers and fast forward to now. So that sort of brings us to now, which is solving more of these customer problems and getting to a repeatable and scalable sales process. One of the big problems you just mentioned, which was understanding the customer and their problems. Rumor has a doctors hate tech. Can you describe what the tech is that they use and, and what is the state of software in hospitals at the moment? Yeah, I I don't think that doctors actually hate tech. I yeah. think they love tech. It's, you know, it's not a matter of them uh, hating tech. I think it's more a matter of the outdated, ugly, clunky, unusable software from 20, 30 years ago, which is the current state of tech in many hospitals. So I think you and I would probably hate that tech as much because of that you know that's the reason to bringing the latest tech into hospitals 
and making sure that it's it's helping them where they actually need the help. So I I totally after like starting C mode, I know that bringing the latest tech into the hospitals can be difficult because of well both regulations which exist for good reasons, but also the complexity of the processes in just uh, bringing tech into these giant organizations. But that's just more reason for med tech companies to push forward and uh, trying to change the state of the state of tech in the hospitals. Absolutely, and you know the typical state of tech in hospitals isn't great. If you look at the UI UX of the software, it sort of looks like what you and I used as kids, uh, which has come a very far way compared to where we are right now. And you know, pieces of paper are routinely used for reporting in many of the best centers around the world, like the best tech within hospitals are proper databases to manage patients, their clinical indications and sort of their images uh, in, a, in a single database with like a unified system of looking at those images. That's the state of best tech in hospitals. And, you know, we are uh, lucky to be in one of the richest countries in the world and working cr- closely with two of the richest countries in the world, Singapore and Australia now, uh, ramped that problem up to many other countries that might not have the level of infrastructure that we have. And then I think you get a clearer sense of state of tech in hospitals. Security protocols being used that were outdated 20 years ago. <laughs> oh my gosh, 20 years. Yes, as a security <laughs> protocol. <laughs> oh my gosh, that is so alarming. So what, what is like a, a typical IT setup? What, what, is it, what might a radiologist or, or a typical cl- clinician be playing with in their day-to-day life? Sure thing. So the best hospitals that I was talking about, they typically have like three main systems that they use. One is an EMR system or an electronic medical record system to keep track of their patients and their indications and everything. And then they have a image database, which is called the PAX system. And it's also a software that allows them to see these images properly. And then take that one level further. And then there is like a risk system, a radiology information system, where they have written notes about these patients. And that's it. That's essentially it. Many of the hospitals that we talk to, we are like the first or the second AI provider they're in discussions wow. with. It's so interesting, like clinicians start resonating with the problem uh, really quickly. But the moment that, they, that we show a demo to them, the first reaction from them is typically surprise and being impressed wow. with what, what they're doing, which is always awesome to see, you know. But at the same time, the level of education that we have to do around the admin processes of how to actually get access to the software, start using it on a daily basis, and then move towards using it on a clinical basis, that admin process is sort of like the frustrating bit mm-hmm. uh, in, along this whole journey with customers. Yeah, how on earth do you train them? <laughs> uh, again, like doctors, they resonate really well with the problem and the solution. The handholding that's required is mostly around the admin processes, is mostly around setting up proper frameworks and handholding them towards moving from a pilot to a clinical implementation of the solution. Many times they start treating this as like a research collaboration, even when the product is fully built or go through ethics processes and things like that, which are tools that hospitals have used for many other things and they do not have the proper systems 
to yet yeah, make a decision on this. So a lot of the education that we have to do is actually coming up with easier frameworks and, and processes to just start, start iterating on a product, start giving feedback on a product within an enterprise setting, and then moving that customer along the whole journey toward the clinical Im- implementation. Being the first AI for vascular ultrasound, I imagine there are trepidations for clinicians. What were some of the early ones that you had to face? Well, I think one of the you know, most famous ones that you see in media and everywhere is that, oh, AI is coming to replace doctors, right? And I cannot disagree with that more. Mm. Uh, I think a great analogy for that is, is actually medical imaging. So medical imaging itself, it was invented about 100 years ago. And what it uh, allowed the clinician to do is to look inside the human body without the need to opening up a patient, which is fascinating. And you can imagine that, you know, going back, you could have asked the same question that, oh, is medical imaging coming to replace doctors because now anyone can see inside a human body. But just fast forward to now, we know that that couldn't have been like further away from reality. If anything, medical imaging is expanding the domain of medicine. It's transforming medicine forever. And it's helping the clinicians to diagnose the disease uh, earlier and faster and save the patient. I, I strongly believe that it's the exact same story now with AI in medicine. So the ultimate goal of using AI is to give them a better tool to help them improve patient care. I can't imagine any time in the future that AI would replace doctors, but I can imagine clinicians who use AI as a tool would replace the ones who don't. Isn't that fascinating as a form of leverage? Who actually owns the data? Will it be the AI company? Will it be the patient? Will it be the doctor? Who owns it at the moment? I actually can rant about this one for hours. <laughs> I think instead of me ranting through this, uh, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll just cite a paper actually that was recently published by a team of radiologists in Stanford. And they propose an ethical framework around uh, sharing clinical data for artificial intelligence applications, especially touching on the question of who owns the patient data or who should own it. So in, in, in short, they argue that patient data in the traditional sense isn't actually owned by anyone. They argue that whenever a medical data is acquired and it's providing care for a patient, it's being used in that clinical care workflow. From that point on, the data has sort of served its primary purpose. From that point on, the clinical data should be treated as a form of public good. And that means that it can be used for anyone for benefiting future patients they strongly argue against the stewards of this data to go ahead and sell it for profit or under exclusive arrangements. Like there are literally New York Times investigations on exclusive arrangements between like healthcare providers and companies around owning data and things like that. So they, they argue that rather than debating who actually owns the patient data, whether it's a patient or the organization, Anyone who is a steward of that data, anyone who has access to it, has a responsibility and obligation to ensure that that data is being used for the benefit of future patients and the society. And you know, the, the, the saddest part of all of this is that we, we talk about it as sort of this fun legal philosophical question. And 
we start collecting the fact uh, that we see on a daily basis mountains of extremely useful clinical data being collected and then just collecting dust in a hospital database somewhere instead of it being used by the clinicians within those hospitals or even researchers outside and even companies to save the next patient and the next. So no one should own patient data. Okay, so you you buy into the idea that everyone should be able to use it. It We shouldn't be striking exclusive deals between hospitals and companies. Why is that a bad thing? It would mean that you are essentially treating a form of public good. You're giving that public good only to a very specific group within a very specific timeline that you think are the best group in the world to work on that, Mm. which... And within the 7 billion people world that we live in right now, and with all of the research groups and companies around the world working on different problems, sounds like a very suboptimal way to try to improve patient care. Mm-hmm. It might benefit a few people, but that data is being underutilized a lot when it's not being shared by, by everyone to use. Yeah, you're basically blocking the way of innovation with that uh, healthcare in its nature. It's very complex and probably, you know, the more people you can get involved in uh, in solving healthcare problems, the higher the chance of the problem actually being solved. It's not like it's a solved issue and someone is just getting that data and like monetizing it. Mm -hmm. It's a very complex problem that if you actually can make it a public data, you're increasing the chance for everyone, for every single patient to be able to get to a better treatment sooner. And what if I just want to own my own data? If I don't make a mistake, that radiologist group that looked at this ethics framework, they sort of argue that consent is not required to use an older data set or like a retrospective data set that was collected from the patients, because Mm -hmm. again, the primary purpose of that is to provide care. I feel like that's something that a lot of hospitals are starting to implement, which is collecting broader consents around that data being later on used for research. And of course, on a completely anonymized and, and private basis. But if a patient wants to opt out, I feel like, sure, they should have the right to. Can I ask how you both have been able to collect your data? Sure thing, yeah. Through us being uh, lucky to be able to find great clinicians around the world, our work and our message sort of resonating with them and then striking research collaboration agreements between our company and their institutions. Just sharing the startup story part of that, we actually started working on our uh, own data, like literally Milad's and my own (laughs) I remember signing up for it. Get my own scans done. <laughs> yeah, you as well. And and actually, by now, I think we have a scans from almost everyone in the CMO team as well. But in the very early days, you know, we just got the scan for the two of us and started, you know, building the very first version of the algorithms on that. And then after that, yes, yeah, Milad said it was. Uh, the problem and the solution resonating with the clinicians so that they were onboarded with sharing data with the company. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk a bit about what raising capital has been like for both of you. What are you aiming to achieve with your first round of financing? We've just announced our Series A round, which was closed right at the first spike of COVID. <laughs> 
Perfect timing, exactly. Intentional. <laughs> <laughs> but that Series A round, it was sort of built on the back of the seed round that we closed in 2018. So in, in 2018, we closed a 1 million round a seed, which was really about building the core technology and getting it to a point of regulatory approval. So the key question that we had to answer back then with that seed round was really, can we actually build the technology? Can we get the right team together? Can we get that technology through to a point of regulatory approval? And we feel awesome that we did prove those key points around the tech and the regulatory side. And we also started bringing revenue by selling our first product to, to hospitals, which was massive. But, you know, I think it's just shout out to our team at C-Mode. My mind is blown that over a course of about 15 months, we could get from idea to a regulatory approved product and starting sales to large hospitals, again, with like 15 months and a tiny, tiny startup team. So yeah, uh, like those seed round memories are forever etched in my, in my subconscious. <laughs> I cannot forget any of those. Like I remember doing demos with Sadaf and I when we just had like one team member and our, our team member was like literally solving bugs when we were going with a cab from one hospital to another for the next demo. It was, it was crazy. We've come a long way from that, but again, I cannot forget that. Yeah, I, I remember the pitch and just leaving. Oh my gosh, they have done this, 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 and they've spent this. And it was mind boggling after that pitch. On the, on the topic of FDA approval, do you have any sort of practical tips for anyone else going through that same process? Yeah, I, I think I have two good ones. I, I probably <laughs> learned scars them. scars you can reveal? <laughs> yeah, I probably learned them the hard way, but it's, it's great that I learned them. So happy to share. So I think two like pieces of knowledge there. The first thing is that, you know, just hearing the name of FDA can freaks you out. <laughs> but honestly, like over the past two years, we have found that uh, you can easily just discuss ideas with them. You can just email them, arrange meetings, you know, to make sure that the clinical study that you are designing matches the, the requirement that they have. And they are super responsive. They're super helpful. And just going back, like I would start talking to FDA and other regulatory bodies from day one of starting a medtech company. The second thing, which is more like a specific to FDA, is that FDA actually has an amazing uh, public data set where you can see the information from any product that has received the FDA approval. And just doing like a quick search on the website can answer a lot of your, your questions that many like FDA consultants can't. So I remember like during the seed round, everyone was telling us that, oh, you can't receive FDA approval with retrospective data, with data that is already collected. And you do a quick search on FDA and you see like all of these approvals that companies have obtained with retrospective data. Or like the second example of that is everyone telling you that you can't get a, uh, approval from FDA if your data is not from U.S., and then again, you do a quick search and see that, well, actually, that is not true as well. So it's, it's one of the best resources that 
I think like any medtech company can use the public data set that FDA has on any FDA approved product. At the end of the day, especially recently with like all of the uh, use of AI in medicine, they are trying to be super helpful bringing those technologies into hospitals. I don't know, maybe it wasn't the case like 10 years ago, but mm. obviously like in the past few years, we're seeing that there are a lot of rumors that they're not true. They're just trying to help and being helpful, even if you're a tiny startup. If you're coming up with something completely new, you're the first. How much time should I budget in my mind when I start something like this? Look, I think more than like budget, it's, it's time. So it's mm. not super expensive. All of these regulatory body usually have a scheme for smaller companies. And by smaller, I mean like FDA has a scheme for small to medium companies. If your revenue is below 100 million US, uh, you are considered as a small company. So I think every startup small company. So in terms of cost, it's not actually a lot. Maybe you, you would pay more of that like budget for consultants and people reviewing your documents. But in terms of time, it takes a significant amount of time to build the infrastructure for that. But after that, it's one of those things that's quite scalable. So if you spend the time and build it once and build it right, you can use it like over time for every other product that you build, which is awesome. What are some of the bits of advice you received super early on that turned out to be totally incorrect? So one of those was ask doctors how much their stuff costs in hospital. <laughs> what? No, they don't. they don't. Like doctors don't know how much their stuff costs a lot of times. It's about <laughs> like procurement people and getting in touch with those admin levels. Mm. That was one. Another one was we got mixed advice on this, but we're sort of subscribing uh, to the second ideology. So the first one was like, try to get someone who's done it before, try to get someone super senior from a massive like medical company for task X, Y, and Z, whether it's like engineering related or business development related or regulatory, et cetera. And the other piece of advice was to try to go with, I think you guys at Blackbird have this fantastic motto of like hungry, not the proven. Try to go with the hungry, not the proven. And we are starting to subscribe to that just more and more every day. We, on, on hiring, we started sort of throwing away resumes after the first glance and just building our own tech tasks or our own case studies to make sure that we're making the right decisions for the team. And again, like massive shout out to the CMO team. We've, we have like just like the, the perfect team. Like these guys are all just dropping down with a parachute and doing the job of a department <laughs> mm. in like a tiny startup company. That's quite amazing. Yeah, yeah. So on hiring, we were getting like mixed signals around seniority versus someone who is willing to get their hand dirty. C-Mode and other healthcare companies are a little different to some other industries where they're up against a wall of bureaucracy and legacy systems. What are some of the things you had to reveal to yourself and just pulled your hair out? So what we've had to do is to be as creative as we can with creating fast iteration loops. And at the same time, 
to to be able to create really good relationships with a small like handful of group of initial clinicians that really buy into the mission and then build from there to get access to a wider network. It's really about on those early days on on talking to that like core customer group, making sure that you're refining your product as much as possible while you're trying to be aware of whatever exists outside of that that closed knit group, uh, as opposed to probably traditional SaaS businesses or non-medical SaaS businesses, which start those discussions around growth much earlier on compared to medical SaaS companies. For doctors, uh, thankfully for the two of us coming from an academic background, we were speaking a language that they resonated with. And it was then about building a good relationship to make sure that uh, they know that what are the intentions behind the company. They understand that Yes, we do research, but not in the context of a university, in the context of a company that eventually, like any other company, needs to get funded from its customers. And that means like selling products and everything. So while building that credibility at the beginning, uh, that then essentially allowed us to, to be able to remove some of these barriers around, around getting feedback from customers. Why did you both raise a Series A? What do you want to achieve? So as much as our seed round was about proving that core technology, getting to a point of regulatory approval, our Series A is about expanding on the products that we've built to solve more of our customers' problems and also getting to a repeatable and scalable sales process. If we start looking at it sort of as like Delta Progress for a company with our first seed round, uh, with our seed round, we started building and validating our first product and that second progress unit for us is backed by the Series A, which is around building a repeatable sales process as well as expanding our product offerings for the customers. The next one and a half to two years for C-Mode are all about showing that we have the right infrastructure, the right processes in place to build new products and solve clinical problems, but with the speed that's as close to as a non-medical SaaS company. And at the same time, we have a very clear layout of how sales processes within massive hospitals and imaging chains work. And especially in this baby stage of medical AI in hospitals in general, and you know, move towards, like any other company, towards a point of being funded by our customers by the, by the end of the Series A. So it's all about scaling up our sales processes in addition to to product and R&D. Have you found your first sales agent yet? Not yet. Let me plug that in. CMODE's hiring for a super exciting sales executive role to help us get our technology into more hospitals around the world. What are you looking for? So someone ideally with an enterprise IT sales background, someone who is excited about getting a new technology, into massive and complex organizations. If they've done that within large enterprises uh, like banks or financial institutions, great. If they've done that with hospitals and new medical software and medical equipment, even better. Brilliant. Well, that is getting flagged to the world. Thanks so much, guys. Mason, this was great. Thank you so much. Now, let's listen to Nikki Shavak, the co-founder of Blackbird and now a board member to C-Mode. Thank you for joining me, Nikki. I want to start with the market. What do you love about AI bridging its way into healthcare? 
if you think about AI on some general level, it allows computers to process images with as much efficiency as computers have processed text in the last couple of decades. So if you think about Google organizing the world's information, it has mainly been that sort of text processing. Whereas AI getting so cheap and so good and machine vision getting so cheap and so good, it has allowed computers to really see like a human and to interpret imaging like a human. And so all of, I think, the interesting categories of AI investment in the beginning are actually image-solving industries. So our first investment was in Zooks, which is uh, software that allows a car to drive itself and really through seeing the world around it and making decisions uh, and reacting to those sort of people and, and, and cars and so on. And the, the next, I would say, layer or wave um, of problems to be solved that we've gravitated towards at Blackbird is... Uh, healthcare diagnostics and the ability of software to help humans diagnose uh, medical conditions. The, the sort of more you delve into it, the more strange it is that you have doctors who are overworked and you know bleary-eyed making these kind of life or death, yeah. literally, assessments of someone's condition and to have this kind of uh, co-pilot or Iron Man suit alongside them to help make sure that they're making those decisions in a very consistent and accurate way. So I think that sort of led us to, to explore the idea of investing in healthcare was actually one of our anti-investment themes. When we started Blackbird in 2012, we said we'd never invest in a healthcare company, but of course the technology world leads you in new and fresh directions. And you know, one of those is the idea of software um, completely reimagining the healthcare industry. Back in 2012, what was so unattractive about investing in healthcare? I think our sort of historical view of healthcare was it's this industry that is very devoid of software. It's these you know weird devices that have you know hard to use interfaces, and it takes you decades and billions of dollars of capital to get approved. And it's also this sort of very lottery-like economics of it might work, but most likely it will not work. And there's not that sort of tight feedback loops that you get with a software company and these kind of units of progress that happen within you know, 12 or 18 months rather than 10 years. So we'd sort of shied away from it for all of those reasons, but revisited it because of those reasons and because the industry had changed and the ability of founders to build companies in healthcare um, to make these sort of units of progress within that kind of seed round uh, of capital, one or $2 million within that timeframe of uh, 12 to 24 months, companies can make progress just like C-Mode has over its uh, seed round of building a product, having it approved by regulatory bodies, talking to customers right from the beginning, winning customers straight away after regulatory approval. All of those things are now possible in healthcare that were not possible when we started Blackbird in, in 2012. In one of our investment memorandums, which is just a, ba a basic document that outlines our strategy, we said we would never invest in companies that need FDA or TGA approval. They still need that as important milestones. How you became comfortable with that? There are a number of types of regulatory approval. So there's that that we were naive to in the beginning, but we have learnt over time. But I think the biggest difference is... Do you need to go and gather data 
Or can you backtest your software on historical data that has already been gathered? And so traditionally, when you're developing a drug, you need to go and first recruit a clinical participants in a clinical trial. You need to observe them over a long period of time. You want to make sure that your vaccine really does, you know, uh, cure COVID-19 mm. and doesn't you know, have Kill some everyone. strange side effects. So <laughs> there's something about this process of having to go out, run a clinical trial for a long period of time, go out and find the right people that, you know, that, that actually was the, the thing that we were not attracted to rather than healthcare and, and regulatory approval per se. And so with software companies who are building themselves on historical data sets um, where you know, the x-rays, the MRIs, the cancer diagnosis, the sort of actions have already happened years ago in some cases, and um, you're backtesting the software on, on those already gathered. Uh, so it's almost to spin up a clinical trial, you can do it in five minutes rather than um, five years. And that has really been the key principle that we have anchored our sort of boundaries around. Mm-hmm. Can, the, can the approval rely on historical data? versus can the approval rely on this recruited clinical trial where the data has to be gathered in the future. Moving on to the sales model, on the service of it, selling into hospitals seems like an absolute slog. And therefore, pretty much I'm Blackbird-like. Why didn't you care about that? I think you always have to make exceptions. There is no doubt that Blackbird gravitates towards this bottom-up distribution where the worker of an organization um, just uses the product for free, um, signs up with their credit card, helps recruit their team to use the product, and you know hundreds of these little uh, micro credit card decisions occur across an organization that add up to a big amount per company, but a very sort of decentralized in nature. That obviously makes no sense in this world, or at least um, on the face of it, makes um, little sense. You know, hospital systems, the ultimate large organization you know, in Singapore, hospital can't even be connected to the internet. We're sort of at the extreme end of the sort of go-to-market spectrum. At the same time, I think the product is so transformational. And when the product is so transformational, when it completely reinvents the radiologist day, when it completely reinvents the user of the product's work life, that is the is the worthiness to try and that is the worthiness to attempt to build a efficient sales and marketing model um, because it is such a leap forward uh, versus a incremental, you know, it helps me save five minutes a day type product. And so I think the the nature of CMODE's products and, and a lot of healthcare software companies to completely transform the industry and literally save people's lives. It's not a, you know, a joking claim. They literally would be saving lives if these decisions were made with the co-pilot of the software rather than just the, the human doctor. I think that, that's, that's what provides the fuel of the fire. And then I think as uh, you know, C-Mode is very early on in its life, but there is just room for fresh um, ideas around sales and marketing. You don't have to accept the status quo of it being a you know, big decision where you need to go and have steak dinners and play golf with senior members of the organization and then wait a year or two to get a big, big check. I think there's room to innovate on the sales model, even in the healthcare industry that we'll see companies like CMERD and others try and hopefully succeed with that, you know, will reshape people's views of how do you sell to a a hospital or or a, a medical institution. Do you have any software learnings in respect to sales that might be helpful for founders looking to attack the healthcare space? 
I think one, you know, obviously principle is that you need to transform the day. So of the person, you can't um, improve it a little bit. You have to completely change the way people spend their, their working lives. The other thing is I think you have to take the responsibility to for that to happen. And what I mean by that is you can't, it's not going to be like a, you know, DevOps manager who actively seeks out 20 different products and tools and is, you know, on product hunt looking for 20 other products or tools that they can you know, use in this wide array. I think there's more responsibility that's needed on the part of the company to integrate with the workflows, to integrate with the systems that they already use, to integrate the, the, the output of the product into other systems. So I think that sort of mindset of integration and mindset of how do you get it to glue together with all of the systems that they already use, that is paramount in this endeavor versus say other you know software companies where that perhaps isn't so important. What do you love about the founders, Siddharth and Milad? They just go and do it. You know, the world truly is divided into people who do things and people who talk about things. And <laughs> with such a small amount of capital, their seed round and with such a small amount of time, they went and built a wonderful product. Sadaf single-handedly wrangled regulatory approval in a matter of months. They built a wonderful team in Melbourne full of, you know, the best talented engineers. And there's just no complaints. There's, there's no, it was hard. There was no, we don't have a lot of money. There was no, we don't have a lot of time. It was just results, results, results. And then also I think that mindset of, I don't need to be taught anything. I can just go and learn it. And, you know, I don't need to have university degree experience or have professional experience to get a product regulatory approval to, you know, build a, a team of engineers in Melbourne to sell to hospital systems. All of this, they just jumped in with enthusiasm and um, brought their kind of fresh first principle thinking to it. And as I said, the results have been stunning and you know we're excited to build our ownership in the company with the series a round and myself joining the the board to to help them in the next stage of their journey so we would love to meet you know more milads and more sadafs at blackbird thank you very much for your time nikki cheers mason thank you so much for joining us if you have any questions or feedback we'd love for you to send us an email wildhearts at blackbird.vc I hope you subscribe and if you like the podcast, we'd be super grateful if you left us a review. And finally, and if you haven't already, make sure you check out Giants Weekly, our new online event series that's on Tuesday, 8 a.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time. For 30 minutes, we interview the top tech leaders. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon.